Good evening. I'd like to call to order the City of Champaign Township meeting for December 10th, 2019. Will the clerk please call the roll? Board member Stock? Here. Beck? Here. Bricks? Here. Bruno? Here. Foreman? Gladney? Present. Kyles? Here. Pianfetti? Here. Chairman Finan? Here. Uh, do we have any correspondence? No, Your Honor. Okay, so we've got uh, Ordinance 2019-1201. And I move that we accept, are we accepting? Approve? Move, approving, As amended. yeah, let's do that. Uh, of Ordinance 2019-1201, uh, tax levy as amended. Second. And is there, are there any technical questions? Uh, Supervisor, do you want to speak to this? I will, and I apologize. I take full responsibility for the typo in this last document. So the reason this is amended was that the total funds levied in last week's document was 730954. It should have read 720954. In every other location, 720954 was our amount levied except for that. And so uh, uh, we agreed to bring it back to you as amended, um, and that's the only change. Okay. Anyone in the audience? Seeing none, comment? Clerk, please call the roll. Board member Stock? Yes. Beck? Yes. Bricks? Yes. Bruno? Yes. Gladney? Yes. Kyles? Yes. Pianfetti? Yes. Chairperson Finan? Yes. Motion passes. Is there anyone in the audience who wishes to address the town board? Please step forward. Seeing none, Supervisor, do you have any comments? I have none, Your Honor. Town Board, do you have any comments? Seeing none. Our next meeting is January 7th, 2020. I need a motion to adjourn. I move we adjourn. All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed, same sign. Motion carries. I now call to order the City Council Study Session for December 10th, 2019. Uh, and Deputy City Manager, did you want to introduce this? Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and introduce uh, Rachel Joy um, and Laura Hall. Uh, they'll be discussing the Human Rights Ordinance update. Good evening, Council. Uh, we were here in June, and we're back to kind of go over some things that um, you gave us direction on and feedback. Okay. Um, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, reducing the time for uh, post-prison time to consider convictions from five years to two years, um, looking at convictions to consider and clarifying probation and parole and a few other um, criminal justice terms and definitions, providing some additional information or clarifying with uh, Champaign County Housing Authority guidelines, as well as providing some additional information on the Cook County Just Housing Amendment. When we were here in June, we talked a lot about sort of HUD guidelines and how they related to um, federally funded public housing providers. 
Um, with that, we talked about sort of mandatory exclusions, what those were, and as we looked at the Champaign County Housing Authority and their policies, um, they also adhere to the same guidelines. They also, as is sort of the trend across the country, looking at ways to provide more access to housing for those individuals who are formerly incarcerated. So you see several programs around the country looking at working with organizations, how they can sort of reunite families, and also provide more access to creative housing opportunities for the formerly incarcerated. And the Champaign County Housing Authority does that as well. The Cook County Just Housing Amendment, that was passed in April. Their rules were just approved November 20th of 2019. And it actually goes into effect in January of 2020. Just want to highlight a few of the uh, major areas of the approved rules. One of the things is that the landlord or property owner is unable to look at prior to on an application ask the question about criminal background. They have to wait until they want to ensure that this person is a viable tenant. So it's not something that you can do up front. So that's one of the highlights. They do not and cannot ask the question on an application for housing. They also have to provide a reasonable amount of time for the individual to dispute their denial. So once an individual is denied, they have a certain amount of time. They did not specify what the time is. They just indicated that it had to be reasonable. So an individual has the opportunity to come back during an appeals process to talk to the landlord during that process about occupancy. They also have a three-year period. That is the only time frame that they can look back for convictions. Unlike our ordinance that specifies forcible felonies, they just talk about any conviction. They don't have a specific conviction that they are talking about. And they can look back for a three-year time frame. The landlord is also required, so once this individual, let's say that they apply for housing, they've done a criminal background check after the landlord has determined this would be a viable tenant, and then they've been denied. During that process, the landlord is required to detail in writing why they have denied that individual. They have to show what the risk is to property or to the safety of other occupants. So the landlord has to provide that information to the tenant. After that process, so the actual appeals process is completed, then the tenant has the opportunity, if they still disagree with that determination, to actually go and file a complaint with the Commission on Human Rights. So essentially, the tenant or potential tenant would have a package to provide to the Commission on Human Rights of the selection criteria they received, the criminal background, and also sort of the explanation from the provider of why they will not take them for housing. So in other words, uh, the burden is on the landlord to prove that this individual will not be a viable tenant. We don't have any information on how well this is working since it won't actually begin until January of 2020. Um, for the second part of our presentation, Laura Hall will talk about uh, criminal justice terms, also categories of discrimination, and provide you with information on the proposed language uh, this evening for your consideration. So last time, last time we were talking about different terms, and it seems like we weren't all speaking the same language. So I wanted to 
Rachel and I wanted to clarify um, some terms that seemed um, a little, or just people didn't fully understand. So when we talk about felonies, we're talking about a crime for which there's a sentence of death or a term of imprisonment in a penitentiary for one or more years. And penitentiaries, penitentiaries are commonly referred to as prison or DOC, the Department of Corrections. So that's what we're talking about. We talk about felonies. Misdemeanors are any offense for which a term of imprisonment in other than a penitentiary for less than one year may be imposed. And this is commonly referred to as county jail, jail or county. There's also some questions on parole and probation. And parole is a form of early release from the penitentiary after an inmate has served a portion of their sentence. And then the inmate serves the remainder of their sentence um, outside of the penitentiary. There's also supervised release, which is a period of oversight imposed by the judge at the time of sentencing, and that begins after the prison time has been served. And probation is a sentence in lieu of incarceration. It's a conditional freedom. So how the ordinance would apply to persons on parole or probation, if you're on parole, and let's say you were sentenced to 10 years, um, and you were paroled after six years, you would serve the remaining four years of the sentence on parole. So only the two years from the date you're released from the penitentiary forward is the date that um, we would count for our, our ordinance that can be considered by the landlord. Uh, the same is true for supervised release. The date that we, our ordinance counts, is from the date you're released from prison two years forward. And probation, the ordinance doesn't apply to probation because there is no term of incarceration in the penitentiary or um, typically in county jail often. So the categories of discrimination, there's two categories. There's disparate treatment or intentional discrimination, and our code does not provide for a defense to intentional discrimination. Um, there's disparate impact or disparate effect discrimination, and that's a neutral policy or a, a practice, a facially neutral policy or practice, which adversely impacts a protected class. Business necessity is a defense against an allegation based upon disparate, uh, an allegation of discrimination based on disparate impact. So we're proposing to first change our business necessity defense. Uh, the slide on the left is our proposed language. The slide or the column on the right is the old language. And so this, this um, defense would apply to any allegation of discrimination of a policy or practice. And the person who's charged with discriminating based on this policy or practice would have to prove that there's a legitimate and overriding business purpose and that the practice or policy furthers and accomplish that purpose or policy and that the practice or policy is reasonable and there's no other reasonable alternatives that would further that policy. And this is language that's been developed um, in the law. These are the three standards that um, a court would look at to determine this. 
the the one the business necessity defense that we provided for for pertaining to specifically criminal convictions i've only put on this slide the changes the rest of the ordinance remained the same but we did um, change the language from discrimination to a landlord denying an application for housing based on a record of conviction and sentencing to a term in the penitentiary. So we added that for clarification, even though it always meant that. That was always the intention of the ordinance, but it's clarifying. We added into the body of the, um, of the ordinance forcible felonies that were referred to, and forcible felonies are a group of felonies in the, in the state statute. They are particularly bad felonies. They are felonies that involve the threat of physical force or violence um, or the actual use of physical force or violence against an individual, and often their sentences are more severe than other felonies. There might be mandatory minimum sentencing and that kind of thing. And that's why they are grouped together. And then we um, changed the time to two years and took out the um, use of uh, the language about uh, drugs. So if there's any questions. Any technical questions? Council Member Beck. Um, I'm wondering, uh, so you, you went through the parole, the supervised release, and the probation and, uh, as separate terms. Can you tell us if um, probation is ever granted for those with a felony conviction um, yes. in lieu of penitentiary, time yes. of penitentiary? Okay. And then my next question um, Actually, no. That's my only question for now. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Bruno. I, I, too, was a little bit thrown off by our reference to the term parole. Um, for the 40 years I've been practicing law, during all 40 of those years, when judges admonish people at sentencing, they, they've been saying a term of mandatory supervised release comma, formerly known as parole. They've been doing that since 1980, formerly known as parole. I see these definitions that we've extracted from the Illinois compiled statutes, but I think those are definitions because there are still some people who were sentenced under the old criminal code and who are still... Um, facing parole boards when we had indeterminate sentences. You with me? No, I'm... I'm okay. yeah. <laughs> so um, ever since we've had determinate sentences, you get sentenced to the Illinois Department of Corrections for a finite period of time, you might be eligible for release uh, uh, if certain good time, meritorious good time, or compensatory good time kicks in. But you no longer go before the parole board unless you were sentenced, I think, before 1977. Which would have been uh, more than two years ago. Which would have been more than two years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm just a little, you know, I don't want to 
unduly complicate things, but terminology-wise, um, I don't see the term mandatory supervised release, which is a period of time that automatically appends to the end of your penitentiary sentence, right. as opposed to um, parole. So um, there's no discretionary parole anymore? Uh, I believe that's correct. There's no discretionary parole. There's okay. a period of mandatory supervised release, but it's automatic for certain categories of felonies. If you are Now, the judge might have to decide whether you're going to get somewhere between six and 30 years, but the period of mandatory supervised release is automatic following the conviction of a Class X felony, for instance. Um, I'm just questioning our... And, and then we cite it uh, on page um, 10, I guess, of the PDF, but on page... We cite it to a commercial uh, website, criminaldefenselawyer.com, um, which has some language about expungements and how you could be eligible for expungements that maybe is not authoritative um, in terms of a background resource. So I, I'm, I ask those because um, I just want us to have clarity about uh, parole, mandatory supervised release. I think our ability to for our ability for landlords to legally discriminate is limited to people who have been sentenced to the penitentiary. Correct? Correct. And you can't get sentenced to uh, parole without having been sentenced to the penitentiary, but you don't get parole anymore. You get mandatory supervised release following your release from the... You never go to the Illinois Department of Corrections anymore in Illinois for an indeterminate length of time and then come down to the parole board. You hear those stories once in a while, but it's from people who were sentenced to horrific crimes in Illinois in the 1950s and 1960s, and now they're still going back before the parole board. Uh, that doesn't happen for anybody sentenced in the last 43 years. Um, maybe that's not a technical question, but I want to make sure everybody in the room is at least... Uh, that we all have the same understanding of these terms. Okay. Anyone else have technical questions? Councilmember Gladney. So my understanding correctly that what was is being proposed, and maybe I don't have it right, but is <laughs> landlords could not ask about criminal records if and until like, they do a criminal background check and then something comes back on that, or no? I'm sorry, could you say that again? So, no. Rachel's shaking her head, okay. no. Okay. That's that what the Cook County Just okay. Housing Amendment has. Yes. So that is where their application, you're required to fill it out, and once I want to rent to you at that point, then I can ask for a criminal background check to finalize but I cannot ask it in the application up front. That's part of the rules that they developed for that. But to be clear, then, we are not considering that tonight. You just, oh, you you just you put could, that out there. Because when I see the alternatives we're looking at, it's just what you have as proposed changes here, correct? 
but I mean, you could. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I should ask this next question because I don't know if you'll know the answer, but I was curious because you have here the in, in the rewrite of the ordinance the the um, forcible felonies, and uh, you, you talk about what all those are, but I was curious about what those aren't. And I mean, I, I looked it up online and I could find those, and I'm sure other people could too, but are you able, do you know what those are? Like, what would, in other words, what would not be, um, in other words, what would a landlord be prohibited from asking? Or, or you see what I'm saying? Um, what crimes are you can't discriminate for? Thank you. Yes. Felonies where you can have a felony but the landlord can't use it as a reason to not rent to you. Well, there's a lot of felonies. So okay. So what you're basically saying then in this rewrite, what's written yeah. in this, is anything that isn't in the proposed rewrite is, is they're prohibited from discriminating against somebody for that reason. Correct. Okay, thanks. Any other technical questions? Anyone in the audience wish to address the council, please step forward, state your name and city of residence, and limit your comments to five minutes or less. Hi. My name is Randall Nelson. I'm in District 4 of Champaign. And I'm here this evening to support the changes to Section 17.4-5 of the Human Rights Ordinance. These changes are an important step in the right direction. And we'll start the process of making our policies conform with those of similar communities. I also applaud the council for your action to partner with FIRST Followers Reentry Program. Both of these actions will substantially improve the lives of many residents of our city. Although I support these changes, and it's a good thing if you approve them, I'm still confused by the reasons that have been used to justify our discriminatory practice, refusing to rent to protected class of people. That remains in our city code. The Human Rights Ordinance prohibits discrimination in housing based on convictions unless there is a clearly defined business activity. It doesn't seem to me like this has been thoroughly addressed, and I don't understand how discrimination is a business necessity in Champaign and not in Urbana. I'm perplexed by the argument that breaking the law has consequences that last beyond the legal sentence. This council has the power to remove those consequences. This change will significantly reduce the time for those who have completed their sentence that can be denied housing. That's a very good thing. The question remains, where do we expect these people to live for the two years while the clock is running? The vision statement of our city states that we are an inclusive community that welcomes all. I hope that someday we will live up to this vision. Adopting these changes will be a step in that process. Anyone else? Uh, 
Uh, Chris Beard, City of Champaign. I'm sure probably everybody knows from past uh, meetings where I stand on this, but I'm still vehemently opposed to modifying this ordinance in any manner. Um, I appreciate the ability as a landlord to be able to, uh, at my discretion, uh, to protect my investments and the neighborhood at large. Thank you. Thank you. Does anyone else wish to address this issue? Please step forward. Hello, my name is Esther Pat. I live in the city of Urbana, but I'm speaking tonight on behalf of Champaign-Urbana Tenant Union at 44 East Main Street in downtown Champaign. Uh, well, of course, as you know, we asked for more and would like to see more, but these are actually some really significant changes. I, I want to thank you all for having the study session last June. 25 years ago, when the different council and mayor first passed this, it was part of a bigger package, and I don't know how carefully people looked at the exact words. And you all had a study session looking at one paragraph, and when you did that, you saw that there were things in it that you didn't realize were in there, like the biggie that it applied to people, or at least was being applied to people whose sentence was probation. Um, while I share the, the, um, the concerns that Mr. Nelson just expressed about what do people do for those first two years, cutting five years down to two and making clear that this applies only to people who are sentenced to penitentiary will help a lot of people. It will help in our efforts to reduce homelessness and will reunite families sooner. So I do encourage you to adopt these uh, proposed changes. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Hi, uh, my name is Alan Axrod. I live over in Urbana, 814 Sunset Drive, Unit 3. Um, I mean, an improvement is an improvement. Uh, we should acknowledge that. Thank you for listening to when we had come earlier. Uh, I hope that that improvement is approved so that we can have additional discussions thereafter. An example of one would be that we are without uh, year-round homeless shelters for a couple of categories, including for families. The first cold snap, um, I've lost track of time, but it's more than a month ago now, was before either of the two, um, well, either of the seasonal shelters in Decatur or Champaign were ready to open. In fact, in Decatur, they have a policy that it must be below freezing for more than five days before their Salvation Army uh, seasonal shelter would open that's just not good enough for this area. When that cold snap happened, uh, myself and uh, some friends, one of whom is running for Congress, um, went out and tried to make sure that people would be safe. We went to the gazebos in the parks where people take refuge. There was a person who was turned out of Restoration Urban Ministries. No hat, no coat, no gloves. He was shivering. He would have died that night. We don't know if he's okay. But we gave him a beanie. We gave him some sleeping bags. And when we brought him over to the car uh, to give him the sleeping bags, this was at Westside Park. He looked up at the luxury apartments right across from the park, said, wow, those must be really comfortable. There are a lot of things that are awry with our current uh, real estate market when it comes to rentals. It's a very complex market. Um, there's been a presentation made uh, some time ago about the increase in the for-rent uh, housing that is vacant. 
in the city of Champaign, I think it was about 50 to 70% increase since 2014. That's not to say that this is the only avenue where that vacant housing uh, increase is occurring. It's a factor, but we should also try to make sure that there is some avenue, not just for emergency, immediate emergency shelter for families, but a stronger transition program into that housing because there's a gap there um, and we need that addressed. Thank you. Thank you. Does anyone else wish to address the council? Please step forward. Hello, my name is Benjamin Beaupre. I'm a citizen representative for the Champaign County Reentry Council, but uh, today I'm just speaking on my own behalf. I uh, wanted to thank the staff for all the hard work on these uh, study session reports, the last one especially, and this one uh, helped clear up a lot of confusion just on my end. Uh, it seemed like we were all kind of talking past each other on term terminology that we were thinking was very clear to us, but you know we were having different ideas of what that meant. So uh, definitely appreciate all the work that they put into this. I wanted to thank the council for uh, taking the time to address this and uh, keep coming back and trying to get it right. Um, I support the, uh, the compromises recommended. Um, I think it's uh, also a step in the right direction. I have some of the same concerns as the previous speakers, but uh, I, I think as far as a first step, we need to work together with the uh, landlords uh, on their concerns for their property rights and uh, their general concerns about uh, you know their livelihood is at stake here, and you know the safety concerns that everybody has. But at the same time, I, I think we have to really be careful when we do anything with these compromises when we're balancing human rights and you know the real issue of recidivism in our town is also a safety issue i mean when people have no alternative no place to live no place to go they get desperate and they make even more mistakes and you know we can blame that all on their poor life choices but you know you, you can only tear someone down so much before they, you know, if they're already hurting, they already need help and they're not even getting a place to live that's, I mean, things are going to go wrong more than they're going to go right and we, we need to do better. Um, worry that we keep on trying to avoid responsibility for the disparities in other systems that this is building off of. That it's not our fault that you know the disparities exist in the criminal justice system or in housing and segregation and et cetera, but you know really need to take responsibility for our part in this. Not be you know bureaucrats, but be members of a community and uh, face this as a whole of community problem. That these are our neighbors, and when we propagate or even amplify some of these racial disparities in other parts of our local systems, it's, it's on us. It, that's, that's our responsibility too. So, you know, it doesn't require intent, doesn't require ill will or racist individual feelings. We all seem to get super defensive about, you know, those kind of accusations. But, 
you know, there is a problem that our neighbors are living with, and it, it is affecting them across racial lines, and these disparities keep on feeding from one system into another because it's not our fault at this point, even though it's us still using those disparities to continue the problem. So I really just want us to, you know, not be bureaucrats, but be community members on this. And one of the uh, recent housing authority meetings had a panel on uh, reentry housing and the real estate uh, representative there kind of stunned me. Uh, I was really glad she showed up to have that perspective, though. Uh, she didn't even recommend to the realtors she works with to use background checks because they weren't in good indicators of outcomes. You know, it wasn't actually a good sign, good way to know if someone was going to mess up their house or be a problem or be a threat. So she didn't actually recommend using it, but you know, as her job working with landlords, she definitely protected their rights to use background checks. And that, that struck me as, you know, it's one thing to protect someone's right to use a background check, but at the same time undermining a basic human right of shelter to do so for something that they know doesn't even work, but people use because they're scared. We need to be better than just scared and using anecdotes and horror stories and, you know, what if our white daughters are walking through an alley at night? It's not right. We know where this comes from. Thank you. Does anyone else wish to address council? Please step forward. State your name and city of residence. My name is James Kilgore. I'm a resident of Urbana, but I speak here as the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program. Um, so I come here speaking um, kind of with mixed feelings. On the one hand, I'm, I'm happy um, that after a long period of time, the Champaign City Council is devoting quite a bit of energy to addressing the challenges faced by formerly incarcerated people in the community uh, in terms of residents and, and other issues. And I think this issue has been a long time coming to the surface. And I'm also pleased because as first followers, we are working in partnership with the city of Champaign and also we are about that far away from opening our transition house in South, in South Champaign to provide housing for people coming home from prison. At the same time, both the, this ordinance and the one that will be considered um, later suffer from a framing of formerly incarcerated people as partial human beings, only entitled to partial rights. So we, we have to decide, for example, how close should two houses containing formerly incarcerated people be before they don't constitute, uh, I guess, what is it, a catalyzing bomb or something that's going to explode? I mean. How, how long do we have to wait before people get their rights, before they don't have, they can no longer be legally, with the sanction of the law, discriminated against, treated as less than full human beings? Those of us who have been incarcerated, we believe 
that we have paid our debt to society. We've spent time in prison, and when we've done our time, we believe that we should have all of our rights. And the legislation and the ordinances and things that are being discussed here still are treating people with felony convictions as if they are less than entitled to the rights of everyone else in the, in the city. So it's, it's, it's wonderful that we're having this discussion. Maybe not so much because we're changing ordinances, which in, at the end of the day, I don't think changing these ordinances is going to have a, an enormous impact on the opportunities and the uh, life chances for people with felony convictions. But what discussing these things does is it begins to address the bigger problem. And the bigger problem is the mindset that has allowed the United States to become the biggest incarcerator in the world, that has allowed Illinois to become a state that where 56% of the prison population is black in a state that's 15% black, and where those figures are mirrored in Champaign County, where we have 50 to 70% of the jail population being black and the general population being 13% black. So what we, and we're not going to address all of these issues, the, the underlying philosophical notions that inform that and allow that to take place by tweaking ordinances and by offering a few more opportunities to people with felony convictions. We need a much bigger, more radical approach to changing the existing situation. So I'm grateful that this discussion is ongoing, that we are, I think, I think this is what I would call kind of a baby step to transformation. I'm happy that it's, that it's happening. I'm glad you're talking about it. I hope you'll keep talking about it, and I hope you'll get bolder and braver and more committed to recognizing the full human rights of formerly incarcerated people. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council? Uh, hi, my name is David Cisneros. I'm actually a, a resident of Urbana, but thanks for the chance to, to talk to you. Um, and uh, I can't really follow uh, those comments, but I echo uh, a lot of of, um, of what's been said about um, the mixed feelings about this ordinance, but at the same time, you know, um, feeling, I think it says a lot when we're considering um, exemptions from honoring and protecting human rights for for business reasons, which is what the ordinance reads, you know, that, that in some cases a certain group of businesses' um, bottom lines are more important than uh, the human rights of our fellow human beings. Um, and I also echo some of the comments about maybe not realizing the systemic problems that contribute to this issue and kind of focusing um, on individual, uh, you know, almost demonizing individual people. But anyway, I, I won't repeat all of that. Um, like I said, I don't live in, in Champaign, but I watch these meetings every, every week. Um, and uh, one thing that I always hear you all emphasize is the importance of compromise and of both sides and of trying to find a middle ground. And I guess in this case, um, you know, you have, you have one, right? You have one that oh, there are lots of problems with, but, but um, that will help make things 
better, and that, that's a baby step to making things better. So I would encourage you to kind of live up to that mantra that I, that I hear every week on, on TV. Thanks. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Good evening. My name is Linda Reynolds. I live in Urbana, but I want you to know I was raised in Champaign. I have um, my husband and I got married. We crossed the street, moved to Urbana, and I also have grandchildren who do live in Champaign. So I'm here to talk to you on behalf of the fact of I think it's time to stop supporting Wall Street in their prisons. I think it's time for us to be able to try to come together and think about that everybody has a story and that um, we have a lot of families who are displaced, divided, broken, and are going through a whole lot just because they cannot be families together. I'm hoping, I want to thank you very much for coming to where you are today. I can only pray that you will continue to move forward to help give these families a chance to be together and to make a life that they deserve. All families deserve to have a safe, responsible, healthy place to call home. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Hi, my name is Marcy Edelston Schaefer. I live at 2404 Southmore Drive in Champaign. And um, this is going to be very short. I just, uh, I, I echo what everybody else said. I just feel that thank you very much for, um, you know, for these changes. I, um, I wish they, I, I wish that they were more, but I, but I appreciate that. I just want to, I, I, I just want to emphasize that um, this ordinance the people it affects are the poor. I just feel like I live in I live in my nice, comfortable uh, my nice, comfortable, warm house, and um, and I don't I don't have to worry about if someone's going to rent to me or not. But the people who are affected by this, if they get out of jail and they have money, they they don't have to worry about this. This is real. This really only targets people who don't have any money because they're the only ones that are going to have to rent. So I just feel that this is this is. I'm, thank you very much for what you've done. I just wish it would were more, just because it would. I I, I just think it it discriminates against poor people. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Seeing none. Is there any council comment? Councilmember Kyles. I want to um, thank the, uh, I don't know why I'm all emotional. I'm not an emotional person except for height, but um, I do thank the, the, um, the community. I thank uh, the council. Um, no matter how it came about, I thank um, Council Member Beck, I thank Council Member Stock, and the council for, as a whole, for this not being an all or nothing issue. It could have went down to, do you support the repeal or you don't? If you don't, nothing happens. And um, I do thank you all as a whole in the community for continuing to, to advocate the HRC um, for those uh, who go through. I think that this is a a compromise. We all know that some votes are easily 9-0 and some really go down the center.
but I believe that we all um, carefully listen to all constituencies and try to to balance out um, what would be something that would be effective for um, for people like after this ordinance, well, I guess after a count regular council session, there will be individuals whose lives will be instantly changed um, because of this. And it's a big deal, as pointed out by the audience. It's a, it really is a big deal. I mean, when you really think about some felonies and you really psychologically, I think that that's what emotionally gets me. Um, there are those who have felonies for marijuana. And marijuana, for in my eyes, it could be other people's eyes, different, but they're my, it's my opinion, is now legal for nothing else for, but for profit. It's just the way it is. And there are people who got felonies for that. And a lot of people, they, people say, we all knew, always knew that there were people that smoked marijuana. There were the people that were punished, and there were the people that were not. We always knew that. That was something we all knew. But when you think about that, that that separates, um, just had I understand that's not necessarily a forcible felony to, do, to deal and smoke, but I do realize that there was a lifestyle and a culture created around that industry, the underground world. And just to think that within, just for profit's sake, there were people whose lives were permanently changed because of that. That change is now different now in 2020. And um, you think about that. You know, um, to commit a felony in most cases, not all cases, most cases, most, not all. I don't believe that people are naturally evil. I think that sometimes felonies, not all cases, some cases they're just can't describe it, but some people do things out of um, desperation. Uh, people do things that if they had resources, um, they wouldn't do. And I probably it's easy to talk about grace and mercy where you're not the victim of someone who has committed a felony. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. But nevertheless, um, I'll end this by thanking us as a community, as a council, uh, to work towards a solution. Um, I think that that is uh, the best thing that could come from tonight. Anyone else? Councilmember Beck. I'm glad we've gotten to this point. Um, this is a really important conversation for us um, as a council and as a community for so many reasons. Um, it really does help us to lead our work as we continue to address the very real disparities that exist in our community and beyond. Um, for people who are formerly incarcerated and in particular for groups that are disparately incarcerated, um, there's no doubt that it, our justice system is flawed and that we as 
a community continue to participate in that flawed system when we do things to continue to punish people once they've left um, uh, the penitentiary. And when we participate willingly in that, we are fallible. Um, and I think that this is one step that we can take to start to make that um, less impactful and to do better. But it is not, it does not go far enough. And I hope that this will be an initial step that we can take together as a council, but that we can continue to look at um, in a more in-depth way uh, the ways in which we continue to participate in, um, in racially disparate uh, policies. I, I think that it's a, a scary thing to admit out loud that you participate in those um, and that you are a part of that. And it's easy as a council member to um, say we're making progress, which I do believe we are, um, and, and it's easy to say, okay, we've done a compromise. Um, and, that, and, and sometimes compromise is there because there is no right or wrong solution, but there's a preferred solution. Somebody likes red, somebody likes green, and then we're going to try to find a compromise between the two colors. But sometimes there's a right and there's a wrong, and there is a disparate and there is an equal. And in this case, I think we continue to perpetuate disparate. We, are, we have not reached equality. Um, it's a long road for us as a society to reach that, let alone making just this small, you know, small change, but getting to where we need to be as a whole is a long road. Um, so I think that there still isn't a burden of proof to support any discrimination of, of uh, housing at all. Um, and I do want to say discrimination because although we're removing that word from the ordinance, that does not remove the fact that it still is a discriminatory practice. It makes us feel better because it doesn't say discrimination in it but it still is a discriminatory practice based on race. It is a racial disparity. It is a discrimination based on race. Um, if, we, if we go back and examine the issue further, I hope that what we can do is um, see that there really isn't a one-year or two-year or three-year or five-year solution to say that this person will be a better uh, tenant because they've been out of prison for long enough to be a good tenant. At what point does someone all of a sudden magically become a better tenant because they've resided outside of the penitentiary? Six minutes? Six months? Six years? It makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, that in alone is, is just, it, it, it's completely arbitrary. I am going to support this because I think that it does take some important steps forward. But for me, this is not the end process. And what I hope we can do is to continue to look at ways in which we as a city can better 
address the needs of people that are returning to community from penitentiary because that is going to help us as a whole community to continue um, to develop better uh, neighborhoods um, and safer neighborhoods uh, when we don't make it so that people's uh, recidivism rates are automatically going to be at a higher rate because we're setting them up for failure and we're not giving people the tools and the basic needs that they um, that they require in order to be successful on reentry. Um, so I do hope that this is an initial step in the conversation and um, and we can become more comfortable with thinking and talking about this and talking about race as an issue that we need to address. Because I'll tell you, it's a hard thing. And I'm not asking for anybody's empathy or anybody's sympathy because I'm a white woman sitting up here talking about race. I don't deserve any empathy because, um, oh my gosh, it's hard for me to talk about race. Yeah, it should be, t- it should be hard for me to talk about race because I have participated willingly in a system for a very long time to continue to perpetuate racial disparities, and I need to own up to that. And I need to say I participate in this system, and I need to do something to make it a better system because I've been given that power. And if I've been given that power, I should use it wisely. And so I hope that others will help me to use my power in better ways um, and bring the bring the, the tools and bring the ideas and bring the, the things that I need to know to me so that I can do a better job of addressing those issues. So thank you to the staff for taking the time and addressing the concerns that we have. I think that you've done um, a, a, a good job of hearing the many comments that were received from not only us but also the community, and, um, and I hope that we can continue to have that conversation. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Stock. I'm going to dive in briefly. Um, thank you for sort of synthesizing our thoughts. I think that when we first started this discussion, what's it been, two years ago, three years ago, something like that, um, we weren't there yet. The first study session didn't even get off the ground. Um, and I think that we all had to kind of do a little bit of soul searching and kind of think through, you know, where we were and where we wanted to be and, and so forth. I realize that this is not a perfect compromise for many on both sides, to be quite honest. Um, but I think that it's a step at least towards where we where we need to be right now. So, and it's something that I think that we can, as a whole, pretty much support. So, I think that's a step in the right direction. So, thank you for your efforts to bring that to fruition. Anyone else? All right. So, our poll is to direct staff to draft modifications to Section 17-4 and 17-4.5 of the Human Rights Ordinance, incorporating the input from tonight and um, for consideration at our regular meeting. Council Member Stock. Yes. 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 And yes, you have direction. Thank you. And while we're switching um, staff, or maybe we're... Yeah, we are switching staff. Um, I just want to note Councilmember Foreman is ill tonight, and that's why she's not here. Deputy City Manager, are you introducing Ben? Sure, I'll introduce uh, Associate Planner Ben Leroy. Uh, he'll be 
discussing zoning language for supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals. This is study session 2019-049. Good evening. The item that I am presenting to you tonight is related to the discussion that you just had, um, but it, it discusses a separate type of housing serving the recently incarcerated population. So the discussion that, that Council has been having for a while that, um, that, uh, and that you just gave staff direction on was uh, related to the ability of private landlords um, to make their leasing decisions based on uh, a tenant's recent incarceration. Um, and that applies to general rental housing, rental housing that anyone in the community could, could apply for, you know, something that's not specific to recently incarcerated individuals. Uh, what I'm discussing tonight is a different type of uh, housing. It would be group housing, and specifically supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals. We are outside the landlord-tenant context. We are talking about a group or an organization uh, acquiring property, wanting to host um, recently incarcerated individuals, um, and support them uh, as they move uh, out of the penitentiary and rejoin our, rejoin our community. Um, so tonight I'll be uh, talking about the state of our current law um, and then providing you uh, some parameters to discuss about um, options that you may wish to direct staff to, uh, to undertake to uh, more, more liberally permit this type of housing because it is pretty restricted by our code right now. Uh, I'm not going to belabor the point uh, that's up here on the board, uh, uh, but I will, I will, of course, mention it because, as has been said uh, numerous times, recently incarcerated individuals do face housing challenges, um, and those challenges in, in securing uh, safe, affordable, stable housing, um, uh, they contribute to cycles of recidivism and homelessness, again, as has been discussed. <clears throat> One potential solution to this is supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals. Uh, I'm going to refer to that alternately by that title and by the title reentry housing, just because reentry housing is a lot shorter. Um, but I'm talking specifically about uh, <clears throat> supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals. In your staff report, I list some of the many elements that we see in this housing typology. There is not one particular type of supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals, but uh, this type of housing, uh, we see one or several of the following things being expressed. Uh, we might have several residents living in the same structure. Uh, we might have uh, residents not in their own individual dwelling units within the same structure, but that they are sharing bedrooms or bathrooms or kitchens or common areas. Um, residents may share certain responsibilities, cooking, cleaning, maintenance, things of that nature. Uh, there may be supportive social services offered on site by staff. Those staff may be live-in staff. They may not be live-in staff. Um, this housing may be situated in a neighborhood context alongside other residential neighborhoods, uh, alongside other residential uses, rather than being isolated somewhere in a more commercial or industrial or institutional context. Um, this housing is often provided in a structure that resembles a single-family home. It's not an apartment building. It's not, again, something that looks institutional. It looks like a house. Um, and finally, 
Um, and this is, I think, the one thing that is uniformly uh, seen across this housing type is that uh, unlike with private rental housing, admission to this housing typology is controlled by a property owner who is predisposed um, to accept recently incarcerated individuals, unlike a landlord who may wish to make their own uh, choices about that. So it does substantially reduce the risk of rejection to somebody who is uh, recently incarcerated. So what is the existing regulatory framework in Champaign to handle this housing typology? Well, as I mentioned, uh, it, is, it is somewhat restricted. Um, the first operative regulation that impacts this is the household size limit. And this is a household size limit that applies across almost all residential land uses. There are a few exceptions I will get into a moment. Um, but this is irrespective of whether we are talking about four recently incarcerated unrelated adults, four city council members who want to be roommates and hang out together, um, and, you know, any, any four unrelated adults um, in the city of Champaign can live together in any dwelling unit. Um, so, supportive group housing for recently incarcerated individuals is legal everywhere in the city of Champaign as long as there are no more than four unrelated adults living on site. We do not have a good fit for re-entry housing that is uh, trying to house five or more recently incarcerated individuals. Um, and this can be an issue because, as I discussed with this re-entry housing, um, there is a, a spirit of commonality. There is an element of uh, economies of scale when these sorts of services and housing are being offered. So while it is certainly the case that re-entry housing can be and is offered for groups of four or fewer, uh, there are organizations and groups that, that want to provide this type of housing for five or more people. It fits their model better, um, and, uh, and that currently is made very difficult uh, by our ordinance. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about this in my presentation. You can uh, read it in the report, but I will share um, a few of the details about why we don't have a good fit for, um, for large, uh, large reentry housing, large being five plus. Um, we do have a couple land uses that are similar to uh, reentry housing. One is the community living facility. The other is the uh, recovery home. Both of these are group housing. They're supportive group housing. They're allowed in every zoning district. And in every zoning district, they allow at least eight unrelated individuals to live together. However, um, neither of these uses allows recently incarcerated individuals. The community living facility is intended for individuals with mental or physical disabilities. Uh, the recovery home is intended for individuals uh, dealing with substance abuse issues. Um, both of those land uses uh, at present specifically exclude um, recently incarcerated individuals. So they are a close analog in how they function for the populations that they serve, um, but they do specifically exclude recently incarcerated individuals at this time. We do have a couple land uses under which a five-plus group uh, could establish reentry housing, um, but they are extremely limited in their scope, and, and uh, they can only make use of basically land uses that are not intended to be used for this, uh, this purpose. Um, one is the rooming house. The rooming house is a land use that, uh, that used to be very common. It has grown less common over the years. It has grown more restricted in our code over the years. Um, if you think of the traditional college co-op house, several people living together, cooking together, um, re uh, rooming houses are allowed in certain limited zoning districts. Um, 
that number of zoning districts is very small, and then we have some additional regulations that say uh, that the house needs to be um, old. It can't be in a new house, a newly built structure. It needs to be an older structure. Uh, there's a date in the code. You can't establish a new rooming house. So basically, if somebody wanted to use the rooming house typology to offer reentry housing for five or more individuals, they would need to buy out an existing rooming house, move out those residents, bring in their own residents. Fairly difficult to do. Uh, the transitional housing land use runs into its own uh, set of issues. Uh, it does not um, specifically exclude uh, recently incarcerated individuals. It does limit uh, the, uh, the duration of tenancy for each individual resident to two years. So that's one reason it cannot be a good fit for, uh, for reentry housing. Um, it is also subject to various spacing requirements, which can get pretty tricky. And again, it's only allowed in a few limited zoning districts. Um, so, while there are technically a couple land uses that could be used at present for five or uh, more people to, to occupy reentry housing, as a practical matter, doing so is, is nearly impossible. There is one other method in our code at present for um, allowing five or more people to live in reentry housing. That's the special use permit. The special use permit is a legal tool that we have in the city of Champaign uh, that allows a property owner to apply to use their property for something that is not, um, not allowed by right in that zoning district. Um, it's not limited just to reentry housing. It could be, you know, if, if somebody, um, here's a good example, a hopscotch bakery um, on John Street, John and Pine, is a special use permit. It's in a zoning district that does not allow retail sales, does not allow bakeries, but uh, the city, uh, the, the, the property owner ran through the special use permit process um, and, and demonstrated uh, on the basis of findings of fact that the plan commission heard and the city council approved that that land use was going to be um, compatible with the neighborhood. Uh, a group seeking to offer reentry housing for five or more individuals could go through the special use permit process at this time. At present, no group has ever approached us to do so. Um, but that is a possibility that exists in our code. That is an avenue for, um, uh, for someone to, uh, to bring this land use uh, to fruition. Of course, going through a special use permit process is a special approval process, so it's not by right. Um, so it means that there's some uncertainty, some extra costs put on that group. Um, it means uh, a potentially political process, especially when we're talking about um, a historically disfavored uh, land use. And so... Um, while that, that, use, uh, that special use permit process does exist, it does not grant anyone the by-right ability to, uh, to, to uh, offer reentry housing wherever they wish. So um, what, uh, the opportunity you have to tonight is to uh, discuss some possible regulatory changes and, and direct staff um, to, uh, to bring those changes back to you for approval if that is council's direction some possible regulatory changes you may wish to consider. Again, this is for group housing for five or more uh, recently incarcerated individuals. Um, should it be allowed as a permitted use in one or more zoning districts? Perhaps in all residential zoning districts, like the community living facility and the, uh, and the recovery house, um, perhaps uh, some other set of zoning districts. Um, should there be a cap on the number of residents? as we have for community living facility uh, and recovery home. Uh, should that cap, where should that cap be set? Should it include live-in staff? Should there be spacing requirements? We do for a couple of these land uses that are exceptions to the, the four-person, uh, the four-unrelated adult cap. Some of them have spacing requirements. We could 
um, put a spacing requirement on this if we create a new exception to the, um, uh, to the, the limitation of four unrelated adults in a household. Should certain prior convictions be excluded? Um, should individuals with certain prior convictions uh, be excluded from this, uh, from this land use? And are there other council considerations? Um, staff have not done a comprehensive survey on what other cities offer, on what other programs offer. Um, these are presented to you as some of the main parameters, though, that we see um, in, other, uh, in other communities um, and affecting this program. Uh, staff is able to draft a new land use, modify an existing land use, um, to follow whatever direction council um, gives us, uh, but these are presented to you as parameters for your discussion in deciding whether to uh, more permissively allow supportive group housing for five or more recently incarcerated individuals. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. Technical questions. Anybody? Councilmember Gladney. Yeah, real quick. So you mentioned how um, like these wouldn't be allowed in like a new home type of thing. So that is specifically for the existing land use of Correct. the rooming house. Correct. So how do you define new? I mean, like so new you can still smell the drywall, or are you talking about something that's a year, five, ten years old? What's Good question. Let me pull out my report here. Uh, is only structures built before 1965, and that date. Um, that, is, uh, that was one of the major rewrites of our zoning ordinance. Um, and so that date, um, there were a number of land uses that were considered sort of old-timey land uses that in the 1965 new modern ordinance, um, we see 1965 show up in numerous places throughout the ordinance sort of sunsetting these, these old-timey land uses. And so that's, um, that's the history behind the rooming house definition. It's an old land use. Uh, Council at that time and subsequently has never wanted to completely end rooming houses, um, but that was one of the rules that was put in at that time to uh, uh, to limit their their growth and their scope. So, are you saying new is defined as something 54 years old or younger? Uh, yeah. So, yes, if that's the math, the math is right. Yeah. So, yeah, structure only structures built before 1965 can be used as rooming houses. Interesting. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Bruno. In our SF1 zoning district, single family residences, there is no limit on the number of related persons who can live together in a home. That's correct in all zoning districts. So, uh, in the days of very large families, you could have 13, 15 uh, people. Uh, what degree of relationship can you have? Uh, adult siblings, uh, cousins, uh, all living in under one roof? Uh, I believe that is defined in our zoning ordinance. I don't have that definition with me at present. And, and it doesn't matter the square footage of the home. So you can, you can, in an SF1 with related individuals, you could have a small home very crowded with a large number of related individuals. You could, and it would not be a zoning violation. There might be other health code violations or building code violations, but from a zoning perspective, um, you're absolutely correct. Thanks. Anyone else? Councilmember Stock? Councilmember Bricks? So basically, if you have four or under, um, if, you have, if you have a single-family home and an SF1, and, um, and you have a group of people who are formally incarcerated, it is a non-issue. 
Correct. That is currently legal. Okay. So if you have something in a community living, if you have a community living facility or, or a service dependent sort of facility where that doesn't fit in SF1 regardless or it can fit anywhere in town? So the, uh, the community living facility uh, land use, which is the one that is um, uh, intended to accommodate service-dependent populations, which are defined as uh, individuals with mental or physical disabilities, uh, those are allowed at least up to eight residents and two live-in staff in every zoning district, including SF1. That dates back to the Fair Housing Act amendments of 1988. Um, there was... There was uh, state law and actually state funding that directed um, every community in the state to basically legalize that land use at that scale in all their zoning districts. Um, and the language we have in our code is derived um, directly from language that a, uh, a consultant employed by the state basically told every city, you need to adopt this language to, uh, uh, to comply with the law. Okay. Thank you. Councilmember Stock. Just to clarify for my own edification. Um, so this is before us because of recently incarcerated individual group home, but it could also be applied to other circumstances like say a safe house for domestic violence victims or something like that, right? It could be broader than just this use or no? Uh, you certainly have the authority to, to broaden that. The, the, uh, you know, we, can, we, can, we can adopt any land use we want. We have broad land use regulatory authority. So, council might direct us to create a narrow land use that specifically uh, accommodates larger groups of recently incarcerated individuals. You could direct us to uh, be more general and, you know, and change the cap on all households or change the cap for recently incarcerated individuals and for emergency shelters. There, there is, you know, lots of flexibility depending on council direction. Anybody else? Anyone in the audience wish to address this issue? Please step forward, state your name and city of residence, and limit your comments to five minutes or less. Uh, uh. <laughs> no, the microphone back there. <laughs> there you go. Is it on? It is. Phil Fasella, 505 West Green Champagne. I think this is a um, so my real estate practice as a realtor, also as an investor, this is a fascinating section of the city code. And I think the enforcement of this rule is one of the things that I think exemplifies the beauty of Champaign. Um, this happens to be a rule that is enforced extremely rarely in practice in Champaign. I've had many clients who come to me, they say, hey, I've got a co-op that's renting this house. There's 14 people in there. I don't know if it's a legal rooming house. And I've been able to tell them, well, building safety and um, neighborhood services have different rules. They don't necessarily communicate with their databases. It may or may not be legal. Obviously, the neighbors haven't complained to neighborhood services about the co-op, so it hasn't been an issue. And that's the wonderful thing I think we have going for us in Champaign. For most uses, generally, if you're a good neighbor, people aren't calling neighborhood services on you. And we all kind of get along, and we do our thing, and we make this a beautiful place to live. So um, obviously with reentry housing, it becomes an issue of, to some degree, discriminatory enforcement. And I don't know how we work with that, because the reality is there are many, many houses all throughout 
especially the areas around downtown, the older parts of town, like you were saying with the pre-1965. Um, I'm not sure that we have a database of rooming houses. If we do, I don't know if it includes all of them. Um, but I know there's all kinds of unofficial co-ops. You see signs downtown in the coffee shops, different themed co-ops. Um, and they're, they're not a bad thing, but they're are many, many group homes, fraternity homes, different things. And generally, as long as they're good neighbors, there's not a problem. Um, so it might be something where it's worth re revisiting why is the rule always for, especially in these bigger, older, pre-1965 houses. Um, you know, and, and clearly this is something that's more tolerated in the more mixed-use districts, the in-town districts, rather than, you know, obviously people would throw a a fit if it was out in the suburbs, but I think I think it's a really cool idea you guys have, and I think it's not that far out of line with what is actually happening on the ground in Champaign, regardless of what the zoning rule is. Um, there's definitely a lot of stuff like this. I mean, even you know William Foster has the Jesus houses where you see the signs in the front yard. I, I you know not. But, I mean, there, there's different themed houses with different recovery groups that are already in existence that seem to be doing well. We just haven't codified it, or maybe they're existing in sideways to the law, or maybe the city has just, our staff has chosen that, hey, this isn't something we need to put the hammer on. Um, but it's interesting that this is the code, because there's, there's definitely a lot of this going on that, that doesn't fit the, the matrix. So, yeah. Good luck, you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Hi, I'm, uh, again, Linda Reynolds. Um, I know that there are some of these houses that are in the North Champaign area, and we do have some um, residents who do live in some that are actually um, from out of prison. And the problems have been is that there are fire safety health, uh, health issues that aren't being addressed through the landlord. The homes are not being kept up. I mean, there's a lot of factors that are involved there. Also, um, there are some that are for um, tenants who are addiction recovery. And with that being said, it's been a, a hard process in not having um, supervision to really help them along their way while they're trying to... Um, establish themselves as uh, residents. So I just wanted to set that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Council comment. Anybody want to take a stab at the things Ben wants to know? Councilmember Beck. I got my answers already written down for you. Um, so I, uh, I'm, I'm in, I, I, clearly I'm going to be in support of this uh, moving forward. Um, as far as you, you sort of have a list of questions here underneath po possible regulatory solutions that I'm just going to point to for the other council members. It kind of gives you a good, yeah, they're also up there, but there's also like this little list here that you can read more thoroughly what the thing, what the question is. Um, so, uh, it's asking if it, um, we should allow, of course, I'd like to permit this anywhere in the city, um, any district without any, uh, special use permit required. Um, should the zoning laws regulate the number of residents? I think we should make this on par with other supportive housing. Um, and then should the zoning ordinances impose spacing requirements? Um, no, I don't, I don't see any need to require any spacing of between houses. I mean, 
uh, it just that doesn't really make sense to me. Um, and should the zoning ordinance allow supportive housing for recently incarcerated individuals in all residential zoning districts? Yes. Um, should the zoning ordinance exclude individuals with certain prior convictions? No. Anybody else? Councilmember Pianfetti. This may be both a comment and a clarification. Um, and I just may be more tired tonight than I typically am, but um, this seems to be going a little bit backwards in my head because we are fixating on a specific uh, population. So I, I guess I'm a little bit more leaning towards, you know, why are we saying that we need this specifically for in, formerly incarcerated individuals? And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, the, the point that was said about is there a benefit to extending it out to other groups? Um, so one of the things in consideration maybe in other opportunities is whether or not we need to, are we going to keep modifying it as, as other options go? I certainly am supportive of the, the need to have this, but um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable just in our last conversation now saying we're going to be saying that this for this particular home, we have to have specific regulations. I think we kind of now are balancing out again something that we're trying to not balance out. So um, I'm okay with um, trying to think of this a little bit more liberally in the sense that we do need to be able to offer out opportunities to be able to get people housing and to be able to um, provide opportunities to for reentry that makes it um, giving them the resources that they need. And I do um, agree with uh, Phil that um, when they are good neighbors, um, a lot of these things are, don't even become an issue. So I, I have faith that that is um, what will, um, and, and hope that that is what's going to occur. So um, I, I do agree um, in uh, most everything um, that um, Councilwoman Beck said. And... Um, you know, for me, I, you know, I, I think what Phil said, I, I think I'm the suburb that you mentioned um, in, in my area. And so I, I think we would have to probably look and, and I think that would probably be, I might be getting some pushback. Um, I would not, it would not stalemate me or make me a holdout. Um, for tonight, but that might be pushback from my constituents, and I, I wanted to say that, um, but not for tonight because I am in support of, of this. Anyone else? Councilmember Kyles? I am, I am in support of this initiative. Um, as outlined, Councilmember Beck pretty much went down the line. Um, I'll keep my comments there, yes. Councilmember Stock. I really just have a technical question. Um, are the in the old rooming house language? Is there any limit on numbers of people there, or does it just say rooming house? Let me check. 
I didn't find it in the report anywhere, so I'm inclined to say there wasn't, but. Yeah, that's why I brought my, my earlier draft before we cut it down for you guys. Um, uh, there is no uh, cap from a zoning perspective on how many unrelated individuals may live in a, uh, in a rooming house. Okay. okay, thank you. Council Member Beck. Just to follow up on that though, you say zoning, but that mean, that doesn't mean there are no restrictions because Correct. clearly you can only have so many number of people in a certain square footage of a place. Right, right? and I can't speak yeah. to the specifics, but that's right. absolutely correct. Right. Anybody else? Councilmember Bricks. I think this is something, I'm glad that we're having this conversation and, and getting it started and um, I definitely think that helps with re-entry and having places where people can go and I think that's important that we have places and um, so I guess I would say when I'm going through the questions here, um, I don't know about SF1, definitely higher density for sure. SF2, MF1, you can already do it for and under anyway in residential SF1. It's more of a, a density kind of issue. Um, I'm not saying no, I'm just saying I'd like a little bit more information on that. Um, I don't think there needs to be spacing requirements. Um, people with certain prior convictions, I don't think that should be the case either. So overall, I, I'm definitely supportive of this and look forward to getting more info. Thanks. Anyone else? Um, I think uh, I agree with Council Member Beck. Um, and this summer as we, maybe it was this fall when we kind of looked at this initially, I was surprised, I guess, that it wasn't dealt with. So I'm happy that we are, and I think it's a great opportunity to update our ordinance. Um, so anyway, I don't have anything to add. Uh, so you have direction. Do you want to pull to move forward, or is that good enough direction that, that certainly provides me enough direction. I don't know what you need to do uh, procedurally, okay. but I, I feel I like I have direction. I think we're good, aren't we? I'm looking at Fred and Matt, but I, I think we're good. Thank you. All right, so we are at the point of our meeting for audience participation. Generally, if anyone has anything they'd like to state to the council, please step forward, state your name and city of residence, and limit your comments to five minutes or less. like to ask the council a question about um, I would so like you to can't you can't ask questions you're welcome to make any statement you'd like okay. to make we won't respond um, my statement is I want to know would like to um, underneath looking at the proposed plan that was just brought before us that um, what is the success rate I'm wondering what the success rate is for the residents that have been into these um, houses and how successful it has been for them to um, be able to be successful outside of them. So I'm going to suggest you might want to talk to first followers because they may have some of that data for you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Nice. They're sitting right over there. <laughs> Anyone else wish to address the council? Please step forward. Good 
Good evening. My name is Claudia Lenhoff, and I'm the Executive Director of Champaign County Healthcare Consumers here in downtown Champaign. I'm also the community organizer working with the Fifth and Hill Neighborhood Rights Campaign, and I'm speaking on behalf of the campaign tonight. It's been quite a while since Fifth and Hill has been before the City Council, but it's time that we start actively working together to protect the rights and the health of the Fifth and Hill neighborhood residents. I want to start with a brief overview of the situation at Fifth and Hill in case there are folks who are not familiar with it. There is a toxic site owned by Ameren at the intersection of Fifth Street and Hill Street here in Champaign. The toxic site is a former manufactured gas plant, and Ameren has registered that site with the Illinois EPA's Voluntary Site Remediation Program. It's important to understand that we're talking about a toxic site in the middle of a residential neighborhood, not in some industrial park on the outskirts of town, but in a residential neighborhood where there are predominantly single-family homes. The residents of the neighborhood are overwhelmingly African-American and low-income. There are homes, nonprofit shelters, and daycare centers immediately adjacent to the toxic site and in the surrounding neighborhood. We began the Fifth and Hill campaign 12 years ago in 2007, working with resident leaders and neighborhood residents to fight for a thorough cleanup of the toxic contamination. Ameren eventually cleaned up their property, but toxic contamination does not stop at property boundaries, and in fact, Ameren's own data shows that toxic contamination has spread throughout the neighborhood in the groundwater. In addition, there are 21 soil borings out in the neighborhood that show significant contamination. The contamination that is in the groundwater includes highly toxic, volatile organic compounds such as benzene and naphthalene. These are known carcinogens and they are spread out into the neighborhood through the movement of groundwater. These chemicals can change into vapors and enter into people's homes through a process called indoor vapor intrusion. Without getting into technical explanations, the most important things to know are that groundwater moves and its movement helps spread toxic chemicals out into the neighborhood. Also, the most likely way that residents are getting exposed to toxic chemicals is through inhalation of the chemicals in their homes. Remember that this is an old neighborhood with old houses, many with dirt basements, and the neighborhood has been prone to flooding over the years. All of this makes the residents all the more susceptible to indoor vapor intrusion and inhalation of toxic chemicals that can harm their health. So where do things stand? Well, as of right now, Ameren has no plans to deal with the toxic materials found through the 21 off-site soil borings, and apparently the Illinois EPA has forgotten all about those toxic spots which were supposed to have been excavated. As of right now, Ameren, with the Illinois EPA's blessing, intends to leave toxic contamination that is in the neighborhood in place without excavating it or treating it. Both Ameren and the Illinois EPA are latching on to a city ordinance as a way of addressing the groundwater contamination that has been found in the neighborhood on the city's right-of-way, also known as the public spaces in the neighborhood. The ordinance, while being cited as a way of addressing the groundwater contamination, will actually literally result in nothing being done and allowing the residents of the neighborhood to continue to be exposed to toxic contamination. The ordinance is your groundwater restriction ordinance, and to quote the Illinois EPA, this is an ordinance which prohibits the installation of drinking water wells in the area, and therefore no one is exposed to groundwater contamination. This is such a farce, a cruel joke on the residents. The groundwater restriction ordinance prohibits drilling of drinking wells, 
It prohibits a thing that no one is doing and no one plans to do. It also pretends that the greatest risk of exposure to toxic chemicals is from drinking the groundwater rather than from inhaling the vapors from the toxic chemicals that are spread through the movement of groundwater. We together have to demand better for the residents of Fifth and Hill. You all have the power to deny Amran the use of the groundwater restriction ordinance in their make-believe effort to address the contamination. We would be happy to work with you to that end. I also just want to comment, normally I'm here with resident leaders from the neighborhood. You've seen them before, M.D. Pelmore, Ebby Cook, Maggie Cook, J.B. Lewis, Eileen Oldham, and others. Some are now past, and every one of them are sick. Not just the old ones, also the young ones, sick with cancers. So that's why I'm here without a resident leader with me tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Hi, my name is Ellie Fujimoto. Um, I work in children's environmental health issues at the Family Resiliency Center at the University of Illinois. But today I'm here with Champaign County Healthcare Consumers. Um, and I'm here to talk, why, talk about why neonates, infants, and children are especially at risk at the, for the chemicals at the uh, Fifth and Hill site. They're different from adults in many ways. First of all, their behaviors mean that they have greater exposure to harmful chemicals. So they play outside, they crawl, they put their hands and objects in their mouth. The soil that we already know is contaminated, they're crawling on that and then putting their hands in their mouths, which means that they're going to have more exposure. They also process chemicals differently than adult bodies do. Their respiratory systems are still developing, so they breathe in more air per body weight than adults. The chemicals that have been found at the Amarin site can also be absorbed through the skin. And uh, children have a higher ratio of skin surface area to volume, so they can absorb chemicals through their skin at higher rates than adults as well. Kids are also generally shorter than adults, which means they're naturally closer to the ground where these uh, indoor vapor intrusion tends to settle indoors. Um, young children also have underdeveloped metabolic systems, so their bodies can't get rid of toxic chemicals the way adults can. This is especially true for fetuses who get exposed to everything that their moms are exposed to. Young children are also in a critical period of development when cells in many systems of the body are dividing and multiplying rapidly. Um, during these windows of susceptibility, a child's environment can drastically affect development. After we're born, our respiratory and immune systems keep developing until we're 10 years old. Our central nervous system keeps developing until we're 20 years old. That's a lot of time for things to go wrong. So what happens to children when they're exposed to these chemicals from manufactured gas plants? When babies are still in the womb, chemicals like benzene can result in birth defects, preterm birth, and decreased birth weight. In children, contaminated indoor air is also linked to breathing problems like asthma and problems in the immune system like eczema and allergies. One of the most worrisome health effects associated with benzene among children is childhood leukemia. Given that the Fifth and Hill site is so close to several child care homes and Courage Connection, which provides housing for domestic violence survivors and their children, I urge you to push Ameren 
for thorough remediation of the toxic contamination in the neighborhood to protect the city's children from debilitating and potentially life-threatening conditions. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council? Phil Fasella, 505 West Green Street. I, um, I've been to a number of Fifth and um, Hill neighborhood meetings, and this is an issue that's important to me because a lot of the properties nearby where you've talked about the borings, properties that I'm dealing with, control or own. Um, so a couple thoughts on this. Um, one is that I, I would really like to be able to get just the nitty-gritty details, and I know we've talked about it, and I know there have been changes and people are sick. But if there's any way to get those records that you're talking about with the borings and the vapor samples in people's basements, that would be really helpful to me as far as understanding what we can do about the problem. Um, issues of indoor vapor intrusion, as, as scary as it sounds, frequently can be solved with something as simple as a modern radon system. You're looking at 600 to, well, you're, you're a realtor, but you know, $1,000, something like that. Very simple to solve if we can establish there's a problem in a building. That's something the city could probably put together a grant program for, and I bet there's political will to do that if we can find those samples. Um, and, and similarly, the Fifth and Hill site itself, um, you know, it would be interesting to sit down with Ameren and see what their vision for it is. Right now it's zoned for residential. Um, Ameren's NFR letter that they're seeking is specifically for non-residential use which means that the no further remediation order from the Illinois EPA will allow it to be used for anything commercial, industrial, as long as people aren't living there. Again, to avoid exposing children to whatever might remain. Um, so if they're going for a non-residential NFR, we need to see what we can do about changing our zoning to match that NFR letter, because if we can get pavement over that soil, that will help slow the spread of the plume. Um, so there's things that I think if we can get details from Fifth and Hill Association and the healthcare consumers. There might be some really common sense, low budget things we can do like a zoning change, working with Ameren to incentivize developers. Somebody might build a grocery store there, pave the parking lot, and then there's no more water intrusion or it can be treated. Um, but things that private developers would pay for, things like you know, radon systems, which you could maybe do the whole neighborhood for $100,000, that could really make a huge impact if we can understand the scope of the problem. So. I would really like to try to find ways we can find synergies and find ways to work together and cooperate and, and solve this, because it's been 13 years, and it, it needs to be solved. So thank you, guys. Thank you. Anyone else wish to address this issue? Please step forward, or any issue. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone's having a good night. I know it's a long night, so I'll try to be as brief as possible. We need your name and city of residence, please. Yes. My name is Kyron. And um, I currently stay on campus, um, Urbana to be specific. Um, so hi, everyone. I am a co-lead of Black Students for Revolution. Um, I'm also a student, a senior in urban planning um, at the University of Illinois. So I mentioned being a co-lead of Black Students for Revolution, but I'm also a co-lead of Black United Front. Um, these are all... Uh, student organizing slash uh, community organizing um, organizations. So uh, members of Black United Front, which is a coalition of various student organizations, many of, uh, of the students who live in Champaign as well, and um, 
we've worked with the uh, health consumers with, in the fifth uh, Inhale campaign, and we were successful in canvassing um, the neighborhood, uh, spreading awareness of the evidence we, we do have uh, regarding toxicity in the neighborhood. And um, I'm afraid to say that the stories that we've heard while canvassing can't be unheard. Um, so um, we've heard, uh, we had a representative that came up here and, and spoke about uh, children um, vulnerability to the toxicity in the neighborhood. But I'm afraid while canvassing and talking to community members, they also expressed that um, it was common practice to play in the flooding. Um, and they expressed that a lot of times when they didn't have any money, enough money for toys, they would, when it would flood, and although it was this thick, muddy um, flooding, uh, they, did, they never acknowledged it. And um, <laughs> the kids, some as young as six years old, would, would kind of swim through. And um, I, met a, I met a man who's, um, I met several people, excuse me, not just men, that's sick with cancers, and they don't understand how they got it. And from the conversation that I had with the community members, there's commonality there within the, within the, the, the types of cancers that they had, and they all have... Um, an understanding of the toxicity that, that occurred in the Fifth and Hill, um, excuse me, Amron's property in Fifth and Hill. And so when I expressed this, when I expressed uh, my concern, potential concern to them, um, they were asking if, if, if it was anything the city can do about it. And I expressed to them, yes, the, um, Potentially, the city can rally behind us and, and, and help us address and investigate, uh, further investigate, um, this problem of toxicity. And the smile on their face was a smile that demonstrated hope. Now, to black students on, organ to black students on campus, Fifth and Hill is a historic community. When black students weren't allowed to stay on campus, black students located in these Fifth and Hill neighborhoods that accepted them that place a historical importance to minority populations here. Excuse me, I'm gonna to refer to my notes in the last, for the last minute of your time. I'm sorry. Overall, all of we, uh, all the community of Fifth and Hill, uh, request is a thorough investigation of the toxicity in the neighborhood and help in remediating the groundwater, which we know shifts, and indoor vapor intrusion. As uh, Claudia explained, is the biggest threat or risk to these to the Fifth and Hill neighborhood, and is also uh, labeled and outlined in the Illinois EPA's website. Um, as a potential danger of, to, of to, uh, toxic groundwater. So um, the issue isn't necessarily uh, far-fetched or foreign. Um, I just want to say thank you for your time, and I hope that the Fifth and Hill community can have your cooperation with helping address this. 
uh, the children who's not old enough to speak for themselves and the elder who's not uh, healthy enough to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Anyone else wish to address the council? Please step forward. Hello, my name is Jasmine, and I'm a student at the university residing in Urbana currently. Um, and I'm the liaison of the Champaign City Council for the Department of Governmental Relations at the university. And I would like to communicate a statement of support for students and community members calling for environmental justice at Fifth and Hill. It's clear that, that the concerns of the community are being neglected and no action is being taken to meet the goals of the Fifth and Hill Neighborhood of Rights campaign. Community members are at risk of being exposed to toxic contamination in their soil, contaminated groundwater, and contaminated air, as many people have said. The health and safety of community members are at risk, and some are still not even informed about the issue. So there's strong support on campus for this grassroots effort. Black Students for Revolution and Students for Environmental Concerns have conducted teach-ins about the issue, and there have been efforts to raise funds for the Fifth and Hill Neighborhood Rights Campaign. But the local government still must play a part in these efforts. Um, and the Illinois student government stands in solidarity with community members and activists demanding change for Fifth and Hill. Um, and I, I would also like to communicate a separate statement by um, the Illinois student government um, relating to the um, expansion of the Champaign County Jail. Um, so on behalf of the University of Illinois student government, um, we respectfully support and advocate for the recommendations of the Champaign County Community Justice Task Force. The Champaign County Racial Justice Task Force has reported that over 50% of the people in the jail currently are black and in the county that's in a county that's 13% black. This is a trend of racialized violence that we must immediately seek to reverse. Furthermore, recent reports have cited mental health struggles and multiple suicides in the county jails, demonstrating that our current jail system cannot support those who lack mental health care. It is imperative to support the surrounding communities of the university in an effort to advocate for a functioning criminal justice system. And the summary of the recommendations consists of integrating restorative justice methods within the criminal justice system, expanding pretrial services to avoid unnecessarily incarcerating people not convicted of a crime, reducing recidivism, implementing mental health systems to mitigate incarceration, and making rehabilitation practices accessible. So the pretrial process is especially burdensome as people await, um, await trial in the county jail. They have not been convicted for any of their crimes, but they must wait for uh, long periods of time if they aren't able to pay their bonds. And African Americans are disproportionately affected and to a greater t degree than those in the nation's jail population. And the research shows that paying for bonds is one of the main reasons people remain in the jails, and this directly targets those that are impoverished. Cash bail bonds also disproportionately affect those that are unemployed and have limited education, which creates an unjust cycle of incarceration because of external factors. This also burdens the county to unnecessarily increase pretrial incarceration of African Americans. The task force recommends expanding the issuance of notices to appear at the jail, utilizing validated risk assessment instruments and well-trained pretrial services officers to limit the imposition of financial release conditions, inclusive accessibility of pretrial services and reminders for defendants to appear in court. And in addition, the proposal forms are necessary to keep people who have spent time in jail from reincarceration. The task force also reports that 44.8% of offenders on parole are rearrested within three years of release from the state prison. A lack of resources focused on parole agents, rehabilitation programs, and reentry is a major factor of reincarceration. And specifically, individuals with mental health problems are disproportionately affected by the lack of resources and will continue to reappear in the jails and prisons absent the right programs. 
The task force's proposition of the first step reentry program would provide substantial funding to hire and improve quality of reentry into society and mental health coordinators. And although the task force acknowledges its moderate levels of cost, the amount saved by helping chronic offenders would far outweigh opponents' fiscal concerns on the jails. And it's imperative that the Champaign County adopts and enacts the task force recommendations in order to combat the revolving door of incarceration, erode long-term costs, and ensure that mental and rehabilitative health care is available to those in need. And this is coming from the Director of Governmental Relations, the Committee on Community and Governmental Affairs Chair, the Urbana State City Council Liaison, the Champaign City Council Liaison, and the Champaign County Liaison of the University. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council? Um, I, I just you need to state your name. Phil Fasella, five hundred five West Green. I'm sorry. Um, again, I'm. I really want to see resolution at Fifth and Hill. I think we do need to look back and realize the city spent tens of thousands of dollars on doing some soil borings along the pipe. Um, you know, Ameren did a substantial, substantial millions of dollars worth of work at Fifth and Hill. I don't think that people aren't hearing our concerns. I just think it would be good if we could present the data really, really thoroughly and come up with concrete solutions that, that are practicable. I mean, there's no way we could overturn the groundwater ordinance. You're talking you know, dozens, potentially hundreds of properties throughout the city of Champaign that have relied on the water ordinance for their NFR letters. You're, you're looking at almost every major street corner in the city that formerly had a fuel station relies on that ordinance for an NFR letter. To overturn that would be uh, literally impossible. The, the legal implications, the lawsuits, and the catastrophic damage if such an overturning were to stand. Um, so I think if we can get actual you know, numbers, numbers, samples, reports from indoor vapor, et cetera, I think there is tons of political will. The people on the council are eminently concerned about the health of the neighborhood, and if we can get reports that show there's elevated vapor levels in this or that basement, I, I have no doubt that the people up here and the people of Champaign would love to set up a program to remediate indoor vapor, et cetera, but we need, we need to look at you know, real things that we can execute in a year or two to solve this problem once and for all and get it done. And I, I really hope we can find a way to work together so there's a science-based approach that has an end game that, that helps to bring the community together because I think this has been a really difficult situation for everybody. But I think the city has tried really hard, um, and I think you guys have tried really hard, and I, just, I don't want to say that either side isn't doing their part because I think that that's, that would be mischaracterizing it for sure. Anyone else who wishes to address the council, please step forward. Uh, Alan Axelrod, 814 Sunset Drive, Unit 3. Uh, not a fantastic set of remarks. Uh, just more or less a clarification of some of the efforts that the Fifth and Hill community have been uh, pursuing, including actually crowdfunding for testing kits so that a science-based solution could be found. It would be encouraging to see some degree of city support for further study of the health challenges that are faced by the Fifth and Hill community so that we can figure out what those solutions are 
without relying on the painstaking accrual of funds from folks who don't have enough. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wishes to address the council? Hello, my name is George. I live in Champaign. Uh, I'm one of the students that has been working with Fifth and Hill for a couple of years now, and I just wanted to kind of like share a little bit of the insight of what we have exactly been doing in the last couple of months. We've been fundraising so that we can fund in-home at self-testing kits for residents to do their own testing of indoor vapor intrusion so that we can actually have the data produced by us so that we know exactly that the truth that we're getting is is actually what we're reading because of a lot of the times with the data that we've been working for for a couple of years that has been published by um, uh, not Amarin that, that yeah that has been published by Amarin where they've contracted um, companies to do uh, both groundwater and soil testing. The data sometimes shows discrepancies. Sometimes points that have listed, been listed in tables doesn't show up on maps, or vice versa. So we've decided that we need to perform our own testing and to get conclusions and kind of get information about that. So that has been the effort that the Black Students for Revolution has been uh, working on in addition to canvassing and other things. I also wanted to bring up a really important fact that in the last couple of statements that Amarin has released, they have stated that the members and residents of the Fifth and Hill neighborhood are not stakeholders at the present issue and that the stakeholders of the issue are Amarin, Illinois EPA, and other organizations, which is factually incorrect because there are certain people that live there and own properties there, and if there is toxic contamination in the public right-of-way that is owned by the city of Champaign that is funded by the residents of the city of Champaign. Residents of the city of Champaign are directly stakeholders. That is why we're here today, to raise awareness about the fact that some people are being pushed aside and that we're kind of trying to figure out what we can do right now. We're not here to broker a deal. We're not here to strike down parts of the uh, municipal code. I think that the ground, groundwater restriction ordinance serves its purposes in certain areas, such as industrial areas, where you should not be digging wells. However, in the context of a residential neighborhood, it does not protect anybody, especially as Eli Fujimoto has talked about. Groundwater uh, vapor intrusion also happens outside of houses, and all of those gases that can intrude into your house actually much easier can float around where there's no houses. So just because you install a radon extractor or whatever the term is called, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know, the kids that are playing outside are still breathing in that air. So just because your house is clean doesn't mean that the air around you is clean. Just because you build a grocery store over the soil doesn't mean that the groundwater is not going to move somewhere else. So I don't think that we need short-term solutions. I think we need long-term solutions, and I don't think that a change of the zoning code would change anything just because you change the zoning into something more intensive that allows higher levels of toxicity in the ground does not solve that the toxicity is still in the ground. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there anyone else who wishes to address council? Seeing none. Council comment? Seeing none, Deputy City Manager, do you have anything? I do not, Your Honor. Need a motion to adjourn. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed, same sign. Motion carries.